Well, it's, it's felt like a long time since we started this in, in January. And I suggested, or we sort of agreed, that I would try and pull together some of the thinking since that first event then. So this is number number seven. And um, I, I started to sit down and try and do that. And I found it really, really difficult because the depth and the range of the presentations that we've had today and the previous six sessions have been so full and so complex and so rich that it made bringing things together quite difficult. So I wanted to just bring us back a little bit to the meaning and purpose of evaluation and think a little bit more. We've heard today about some of the things that can be measured and claimed about what we do as WP practitioners and researchers. But the way I'm going to do it is explore my sort of personal tensions in practice and reflect back over about 15 years of working in widening participation. And then we're going to revisit Annette and Andrew's framework, which came up in number four, February, February number two, maybe. And there's been some requests to just go back to that and have a look at one of the ways that we can think about evaluating some of the things that we do, but using um, a sort of capitals framework. So we're going to, to end the day, really, uh, with the three of us having started it off in January, but my bit is going to be a personal reflection, really. And I'm going to do it through the three lives of Jacqueline Stevenson. I don't believe in revisiting, you know, I'm not a, an, an Arab or a, somebody who built one of the pyramids or something. That's not the lives I'm talking about. But my academic lives have been in three quite different parts, but they continue to overlap. So I've worked, I came into academia not as um, an academic, but I came in as a member of professional services as an evaluation manager in widening participation. And I made the transition to be a researcher and then have eventually ended up where I am now as a professor of education research over that time. And those three stages really reflect, I think, some of the complexities and tensions of the things that this series has brought together. So my final sort of comments are really to reflect back over what I've been doing in those 12, 15 years and to think about how that's changed me as somebody approaching widening participation evaluation and research and to get to the point where I am now and what that means for us for the next steps which is where we want to end the day. So the first role then was uh, as evaluation manager. I came into work in um, higher education with a brief to evaluate aim higher style activities. So some of it was actually for aim higher. A lot of it was institution stuff that was funded by the European Social Fund at that point. And I did a lot of evaluation activity. But looking, all of the projects that I was involved with were looking at access to higher education or access to education more broadly, with a little bit of a nod to issues around uh, lifelong learning and employability. And I also worked as an evaluation consultant on behalf of the university, going out and working with different voluntary and community sector organisations, public sector organisations, across mainly across West, South and North Yorkshire. So again, did a lot of work with AIM Higher, but also a lot of work with uh, local authority departments. Uh, but in 2000, so in 2002, I was working in, in a research and evaluation centre, and I was 
perhaps a quite a classic contract researcher, contract evaluator at that point. So I worked on policy-related projects predominantly. They were almost all short-term, uh, mostly qualitative, but a lot of quantitative work going alongside of that. And my approach to the things that I was doing was really quite different to how I approach the things that I do now. I was very keen on structure, don't like mess, you should see my bedroom, it's divided in half, husband's side, complete tip, my side, immaculate. Um, very into order and neatness, didn't like messiness of research at all. I knew what my role was, it was to work on behalf of a client and to undertake the sort of research that they wanted, to give them the things that they wanted in return. So I was very happy with control, I felt quite neutral in terms of the relationship with my data and quite objective. And although I would say I wasn't indifferent to research participants, I worked quite hard to limit my relationship to those research participants rather than sort of particularly embrace my involvement with them. So evaluation suited me quite fine. Um, I like this quote from Good about contract researchers about permanently engaging in deploying his or herself to create intimate relationships which seem to be meaningful and then you move on again. And I, it's probably my friendships in life actually, but there we go. And, and, I, and I was very, very comfortable with this. And sometimes it overlapped with my personal commitments to the sorts of things that I was doing, but it didn't have to and I didn't feel particularly troubled by that at the time. And I was constantly negotiating these sort of beginnings and endings of what I was doing. So I was very happy doing evaluation and it suited me. I was very confident about going out and talking to organisations about how to approach evaluation. I had the sorts of frameworks in mind that for me at that time made a lot of sense. They were very logical, I could disentangle the sorts of different levels of evaluation, the different sorts of approaches to evaluation and the different ways we could think about what we might find out. So I would work with, as I say, organisations like AIM Hire to sit down and think about whether they're evaluating processes, so the sorts of things that they were doing to try and achieve outcomes. So I did an awful lot of evaluation of outreach activities at that time, looking at the processes of those actual activities, how could they be done better, more effectively, more cost effectively. I also worked uh, quite a lot on thinking about uh, indicators of effective outputs or the sorts of activities that would reduce and uh, produce outputs. So lots of things about how do you get young people to write personal statements and, and the sort of measurements of those types of outputs. And then working where possible with organisations to think about outcomes. So trying to help in the, at that time, so it's very different from the world of heat now, but at that time really to try and track what might be happening in terms of if somebody's written those personal statements, do they ever actually make an application? Because we, as we know in the days of AIM Higher then, it was really problematic to try and keep on track of, of what people were actually doing and young people, the sort of implications for them. Um, and, and really the world of impact at that point was incredibly problematic. It was very difficult to be able to say that because we'd done X, Y and Z, there was actually a change to 
uh, the higher education demographic profile of students. I still think it's very problematic, but it was more problematic then. Uh, and actually spent a lot of time working in a university that spent a huge amount of money and had a huge amount of ha aim higher investment, whose demographic profile of students actually got slightly worse in terms of widening participation students there. So anyway, I digress. So this was fine for me. I talked a lot about impact evaluation and uh, I've done quite a lot of work really trying to work with organisations to think through whether they're able to make any sort of causal claims about the types of things that they've been doing. So for me, impact evaluation is how would the outcomes have changed if the inter intervention hadn't been undertaken? And of course, that's really problematic because mostly we can't undertake any form of counterfactual analysis because what we're actually wanting to do is intervene rather than not intervene. Um, so it is problematic to think about whether you can claim a particular intervention has had a particular impact. Um, but, but certainly this is the sort of work that I have been doing for a very long time now with, with organisations and then helping them to really think about can we actually measure impact or can we only really estimate the things that we've, we're claiming. So because WP activity isn't a regular social science and bear in mind I was very happy with that at this point um, but I recognise that we can't really have those sorts of blind controls that we've, we've sort of slightly alluded to being highly problematic today and therefore it's really difficult to say that there's a causal relationship. Most of what I was doing there was working with people to think about the sorts of claims, the inferential claims that could be made about particular things. So helping organisations to think about what change are they actually hoping to make and working backwards on those steps and thinking, can you infer from this particular piece of activity that this claim may be as a result of it. So this was my world of evaluation and I still inhabit that world part of the time, so I still do quite a lot of this work. I still go out and work as an evaluation uh, consultant for different universities looking at widening participation, evaluation, but that was all I was doing at that point until I was asked to undertake a piece of research uh, which was funded by AIM Higher looking at access to higher education for refugees. And I then, the very first refugee that I interviewed, uh, this particular person here, sticks in my mind because it then became the start of a journey which is now ongoing, which has involved me interviewing over 65 refugees and asylum seekers and also along that path working with people who've come to the UK for forced or arranged marriages, um, working with um, economic migrants and all sorts of different groups of people but this was the very beginning of this when I thought I was entering into yet another piece of evaluative work around access and actually what it threw up for me was a huge set of new challenges because working with refugees um, you, you had to put aside everything that you've done to that point in terms of things like objectivity, um, sort of thinking about being quite distant from the research because these were people with stories to tell and stories that they wanted to tell. So my research became very driven, not from my position of wanting to control the research, but from their position of wanting to tell me what they wanted to tell me. So suddenly I was entering into a world of having to really think about 
when and where should I collect data, what sort of data, what sort of approaches, how am I going to analyse this stuff and how am I going to disseminate my findings and all of this is in a backdrop at this point of some really fundamentally difficult discourses <coughs> which haven't actually gone away, in fact have got worse of, of late, around refugees particularly as being headline news and particularly asylum seekers. So the discourses about um, immigrants as cockroaches was, was very much prevalent at that point. Um, the ways in which refugees were seen to actually be destabilising rather than positive contribution to the UK. Um, they were, they were seen as sort of um, really problematic. And so the work that I was doing to interview refugees and asylum seekers, I felt very strongly that there were these incredibly negative discourses that were sort of setting the scene against which I was trying to find out what it was like for these people to try and access higher education. So on the one hand, you have refugees as very objective data. They're stripped of any sort of affect of any emotion, they have to be presented when they're trying to make asylum claims as very neutral, very objective. In fact, the guidance from the border agency and the other agencies involved is that you cannot allow emotion to colour any conversation with a, somebody making an asylum claim because it's too problematic. So there has to be a sense that these refugees have simply become the sorts of data that can be thought about. Do they meet this particular claim for asylum? Do they meet these particular claims for housing, etc.? So on the one hand, there were refugees as these sort of neutral data, and on the other hand, as this really problematic set of people with these really lurid headlines. And in fact, the, that, that decade of commentary around the ways in which um, refugees were portrayed, particularly asylum seekers in the press, was picked up in the, um, the whole sort of uh, way in which the press was thought about. What's the inquiry? It's just gone out of my head. The big press inquiry a couple Leveson. of years. The Leveson inquiry looked at the ways that refugees and, um, and asylum seekers have been portrayed in the press over that decade. So I needed to find a new methodology and this is where I made this complete shift from the way of thinking about how I was involved in research to thinking about how I undertake evaluation activity and research activity with this very different group of people. And I still argue that storytelling research found me rather than me going out and looking for something. I like this quote here about the, the universe is made of stories and not of atoms. And actually it became very apparent that it wouldn't have mattered what sort of methodological approach I used because, as I've said, people had a story to tell me and that was how they were directing the conversation. So I ended up working for about um, five years pretty much only on working with refugees and asylum seekers. And, and the paper I'm writing at the moment is actually... When I moved from Leeds Beckett to Sheffield Hallam last year, when I finally packed up my room, I found all my field notes. So I'm writing a paper because in those field notes, I can see my transformation as a researcher. So I'm, I'm writing paper really, which sort of picks up on, on these challenges. And then it came to a complete screeching halt because Having done all of that work, partway through that I was asked to join a mentoring scheme which the university was running very short amount of time, looking at mentoring refugees particularly into higher education. And I still had a very strong sense that there was a way of doing widening participation activity. We've talked about it today, that sort of magic bullet, that thing that would make a difference for people. And then I met <coughs> Fatumata here. 
and Fatu at that point was 20. She'd arrived in the UK um, as, as an asylum seeker, young unaccompanied asylum seeker. She'd been put into prison. She knows I'm telling her story, by the way. So um, she was put into prison with the whole of her family and her brothers, two brothers and her parents were killed. I mean, there's no evidence, but the, uh, eventually the Home Office accepted that that is what would have happened to them. Her sister um, managed to, the, there were relatives who paid for her sister to leave uh, prison and then she followed about a year later. So they came from quite tropical West Africa to Bradford um, in, the, in November and it was snowing. And uh, anyway, so she'd been in the country for about five years and in that time, having come from spoken fuller and French, she spoke very strong Yorkshire accented English. She'd managed to get herself to FE College and she'd got a six unit BTEC award uh, and she was working as a nursery nurse or a nursery assistant. And she uh, had heard about the mentoring scheme and she was the first person that I mentored in the scheme. So, um, and this, this is where my real understanding of the complexity of widening participation work began and how intensive and problematic it actually is. The very first thing we did was we sat down and we talked about higher education qualifications. She didn't have a clue. She knew about professional courses, so originally wanted to be a nurse because she understood that that was something that you could be if you went through higher education. But it was very quick. Uh, we realised that she wasn't going to get on a nursing course because she didn't have the, the, the right qualifications. And we started to talk about different possibilities and eventually she made some choices about what she'd like to apply for. So we sat down at the computer together and I, I honestly can remember this moment. She was there and I was here and we logged onto the UCAS site and we started to put details in. And then I looked at her and said, right, it's, I think it was £15. Um, can you put your money in? And she just looked at me and went, I don't have a bank account. And suddenly, I just thought, this is going to be really, really difficult because everything that you think about in terms of aspiration raising or access, all of that was there and it just fell apart because this person couldn't even make the first step of putting her details into the computer to make an application. She still owes me that £15 and I keep telling her that. Um, so, so eventually, we... we got onto the site and we sort of made her, having done a lot of support around personal statement, that meant nothing to her. She couldn't understand in her country, you just go by qualifications. You either got into higher education or you didn't. Personal statements were, were really problematic. And also, what do you say? What do you say on a personal statement when your last five years have been the five years that she's had? You know, do you talk about, well, I spent some time in prison? Of course not. Um, so we had lots of very inventive ways to try and make her personal statement look like something that you might expect. And, and again, if you go on the UKS website and they give you the guidance about how to write a personal statement, it doesn't cover that. It doesn't tell you how to write a personal statement if you've just spent you know, several years in prison and your family have been killed. Anyway, we, we got there and we managed to put this personal statement in. And, uh, and eventually, through a lot of, of uh, toing and froing, she was offered a place at university um, and, and she started uh, on her course and every single step of the way it became problematic. I cannot begin to tell you how many points I had to intervene. You know, there was everything from being interviewed. The next step was getting her loan, student loan. 
As an independent adult, you have to prove your parents are dead. If your parents have been killed in a prison in an African country, it's incredibly difficult to prove that your parents are dead. You also have to prove that you've got qualifications. Again, she didn't have any qualifications. So we're constantly having to write to the Home Office and intervene on her behalf to actually get them to recognise that this person does not fall into your normal category of a widening participation student. So that that the need to have an advocate was so strong and so significant for her that she couldn't have done it. I shouldn't have to have had to intervene, but I did have to because she would never have got there. So she finally got onto her course and uh, the next thing that was, was quite laughable really was the idea of having to do a, a voluntary placement. The particular course she was on, she had to become a volunteer. Again, clueless doesn't exist in her country, no such thing as volunteering. I mean, there is, but not in the way that we, we sort of narrate the idea of being a volunteer here. And the idea of finding your own placement when you've got none of that sort of capital um, was, was really problematic. So again, that, that constant need to intervene all the time, decoding of academic assessments, decoding of the meaning of different sorts of qualifications, helping her to understand what was required of her when she was writing assignments. So all the way through, um, it was really, really difficult, but, but she got there in the end, and that is her graduating <coughs> with her first degree. Um, she then decided, she then had Mukhtar, so at this point, they'd been living with us, or she'd been living with us for a while, but that's another long story. Um, so this is a little boy who is now my grandson, because that's the relationship that we've had. This is what happens when you get very involved in widening participation work. Um, so this is my grandson, who hasn't yet worked out that it's a bit odd that I'm white and he's not, but we'll get there. And he does also call my, calls me nanny and my husband uh, grandma, which is a bit weird as well, but there we go. Anyway, so she decided she'd do teacher training, Back to square one again because at FE College she'd got key skills. You can't get onto a teacher training course unless you've got GCSEs. They will not accept key skills. So everything that she'd gone through, all of that, as Yossa would call that sort of community cultural wealth that she was bringing with her that would make her a superb teacher, meant nothing in the light of the fact that she didn't have GCSEs in, I think it was science and maths. So again, she still owes me for that money as well to pay for her to go to night school and she did it and she got there and she did a teaching qualification and she's now a qualified teacher. So that was my moment where I just thought everything up until that point that I thought about in terms of access and widening participation falls apart when somebody comes from the complexity of the world that she came from. But what's significant about it is she didn't meet any of the WP benchmark criteria. She wasn't over 21 at the point that I met her. She's not a, which because she's black, um, ethnic minority, that's not necessarily a cohort that's targeted. Um, so she, you know, she wasn't one of those people that would fall into those classic WP cohorts and also I've written a paper, a book chapter, not a very good one so don't read it, but about um, refugees who are international students but classified as UK students so they don't meet any of those sorts of um, ways of getting support either so it's a really really problematic circumstance. I went to do a talk for um, 
one of the Westminster Forum talks, I was asked to go and talk about widening participation some years ago. And that was quite amusing because it was in something like the Africa and India room of a Commonwealth <laughs> building. I just thought, what's going on here? But um, I told her story and I said, this is when you know you've genuinely got equity, when she can get to where she's got to, but she didn't need me in the way. And it's, I don't think a lot has changed since. That's about five years ago. Um, so really all of this has sort of forced me to reconsider my approach and I wonder to, to some extent evaluating widening participation using the sorts of processes I talked about right at the beginning of my presentation in a way sort of meant that there was the tail wagging the dog. Evaluation can by itself almost define the practices that we undertake and sometimes we have to really think about that. Um, do we want the tail wagging the dog? We need to make sure that it's the dog wagging the tail. Um, and it also really raised for me questions of the place of research and evaluation because um, having to really sort of theorise about things like community cultural wealth and social and cultural capital, all of those sorts of things uh, was really helpful for me to really understand why things were problematic. And then how to theorise from what I was finding out. Um, that was th that's another thing that's, that's really challenged me, to be able to think theoretically um, about my practice and the sorts of things that we do in terms of widening participation. And then the links with theory and practice. Um, and as Penny Jane talks about a lot, you know, we need to think about praxis and bring all of these things together. So where am I now today? Um, I have very much disclaimed the neutral observer status. I think that's gone out of the window a long time ago. I'd, I'd like to think I try and be brave in my approach to evaluating widening participation um, and allow myself to reflect on my own vulnerabilities and my emotions and my challenges. I find it very difficult. I think that having made that step away from the neutral observer status and sort of thrown myself in quite wholeheartedly, I find this sort of work really quite difficult. And there are times when I think, oh God, I crave those old days of sitting there with nice questionnaires and, and that neutrality, because it is very, very hard to hear people's stories, to hear the, the problems of their lives, the complexities of the circumstances that some of the people that we really want to go to higher education are battling through. And it is a real battle for some of these people. It's a real, real struggle. And, um, and to have to, to listen to that and then to take the weight of those stories and to think, what do I do with that information? How can I use that to actually make a difference? And sometimes to know that actually you can't use those stories. That's really problematic for me. To really think about the place of ethics, and we haven't talked about that, I don't think we've really talked about it at all in this sort of last six or seven months, but there's something really significant about thinking about our ethics in practice. It's very easy to get ethical sort of approval to go off and do a piece of research, but it really made me think working with refugees and asylum seekers, which took me into doing a lot of work in prisons as well, because there's a big asylum seeking, refugee seeking, uh, refugee community in prisons and really to think about what, what is research ethics like when you're actually practicing as a researcher. This has been really hard. I am by design a control freak, as my children will tell you. And having to give up power in terms of the research relationship over much more heavily to my research participants for them to own a lot of the responsibilities and a lot of the power has been problematic. 
I've had to really listen to my internal conversations and be really, really reflexive and constantly be keeping asking myself, am I doing the right things? And that's been quite challenging as well because quite a lot of the time I think I'm probably not. I hope that I've done no real harm, um, but I know that a lot of the time I've not necessarily got it right. But that does mean I've had to take personal responsibility for myself as a researcher and the practice of research and evaluation that I'm now committed to. However, having said that, I am still asked to run those workshops and sometimes it's quite nice to put all of that side of me to one side and to go back into that slightly more neutral, uh, objective world of evaluation. Um, it's not that it's, it's very hard to see myself in two completely polarised positions now, but the, the, I, I would, I'd rather be this researcher most of the time, but it, is, it can be really hard and really tiring. So really to reflect over the last six months of these workshops, I think that what I wanted to say is, I think this series that we've put together, Penny, Jane and myself from SOHE and Annette from UL and all of the people who've contributed and spoken has shown that we still need rich qualitative data. We want the more sort of statistical backdrop to paint the broad picture, but we need this stuff to offer the important insights and we need spaces to have some of the critical conversations that we've had over the last six months. Um, I also, I suppose from a personal perspective, would want to say that just because we can't prove something doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And sometimes we need to be bold and take risks and just accept that some things work and some things don't. But sometimes it just, we just have to do it for the right social justice reasons and have a go. I think we need to focus on the micro successes as well and one of the problems I think about widening participation evaluation is the, the metrics against which we judge success are quite stark and sometimes there are really small successes that are very difficult to elicit and make clear but we do need to keep focusing on those and again I think that that's what this series has done is actually um, thrown up some of those really small scale things that are really really important. And, and so I, I would argue that we need to keep exploring the nuances and complexities of WP activities and develop the sort of qualitative critical frameworks that will allow us uh, to do those things. And that's all I wanted to say, so thank you very much.